Locked On NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network host. Today, we'll stop in Brooklyn to speak with Josh Bass of Locked On Nets about Brooklyn hiring Steve Nash to be their head coach. We'll go to Toronto to speak with Sean Woodley of Locked On Raptors about Toronto evening their series two games apiece. And then lastly, we go to Milwaukee and speak with Kane Pittman of Locked On Bucks about the Milwaukee Bucks teetering on the brink of elimination. It's all coming up, the bigger stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hi guys, and welcome back to another week of Locked On NBA. I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd. I'm also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast and the Locked On AFL Podcast, and I'm the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com and at Yahoo Sports Australia. Of course, the playoffs are in full swing. We've got some news on non-playoff teams going on as well, so let's get straight into today's show. Now I bring in one of the hosts of the Locked On Nets podcast. Josh Bass is with me. The Nets obviously made a decision a couple of days ago on, well, actually, they announced their decision a couple of days ago, whether that decision was made then or as uh, speculated by some uh, a few months ago, that Steve Nash would become their next head coach. Josh, there is uh, obviously concern about the success rate of uh, first-time head coaches with no coaching experience. How do you feel, though, about this uh, Steve Nash hiring for Brooklyn? Yeah, Josh, I mean, it's been a whirlwind last few days. I think, you know, there's, there was so much hand wringing of, you know, would the Nets consider someone like Ty Lue or was it going to be a Mark Jackson, you know, uh, Jeff Van Gundy, Jacques Vaughn, Ime Udoka, the names went on and on. And for something to come out of left field like this and it to be a extremely high profile person in, in Steve Nash, a hall of fame player, uh, you know, I feel good initially about it. I think there's always going to be concerns when it comes to a first-time head coach, as you mentioned. I like that he's not coming immediately out of playing right into coaching like Jason Kidd did. I think he's had some time to kind of be uh, introspective, obviously observe the Warriors a bit in a consulting capacity, even though that wasn't you know necessarily as hands nearly as hands-on as he'll be as head coach of the team. But I think they're giving him you know a right support environment, retaining Jacques Vaughn as. Uh, as his lead assistant, I think is is really important because Jacques has been a head coach before uh, in this league. He clearly won the respect of a lot of people, including Nets players, with his performance uh, coaching them in the bubble. So I think there's the right ingredients to set Steve up for success. Obviously, you know he's a visionary. I think he's going to connect really well with players. He's going to be you know helping the stars. He can help some of the younger guys develop. The X's and O's is where you're concerned, but you know I hope they're giving him enough of a buffer to the point where. You know, he will be in a position for success. Well, you talked about relating to the players, and I think that's been one of the major things that's been talked about is obviously the arrival of Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant has yeah, it was huge for Brooklyn. There's been some negatives associated with that. There's rumors that the Kenny Atkinson firing was because of a disconnect between uh, those guys and the inability to start DeAndre Jordan uh, over Jared Allen. So yeah, this relationship that Kevin Durant perhaps has with Steve Nash from his time in Golden State, like how much of an influence do you think that Durant and Irving, I'm not sure about Irving's relationship with Nash over the years, but as point guards, both of them, you, you could see something uh, happening there throughout the Kyrie's career. How much of an impact do you think it is that Nash has a relationship with 
these two players, and that's one of the biggest things in terms of you know, getting this uh, getting this hire done. I think it's it's hugely important. I mean, we saw what happened when you know there wasn't a coach that KD and Kyrie clicked with super well, and this was even when they weren't playing. So obviously, they're going to have uh, a ton of influence when you know this is a, an important season for the Nets and, and them and their legacies as well. So I think you know the Steve Nash hire obviously had to have their blessing. You know, it seems like KD and Nash have a bit of a relationship and, and a good rapport. You know, I don't know how how much uh, to the extent that Kyrie and Nash know each other, but I think there is kind of that mutual, you know, uh, Hall of Fame point guard and soon to be Hall of Fame point guard and Kyrie uh, respect there. And, you know, getting through to Kyrie is probably going to be the most important job of, of Steve Nash's tenure. And if he can't do it kind of with his, you know, I think, really kind of go with the flow, affable personality, but also the respect he commands is one of the best players of all time. I'm struggling to think who can get through to Kyrie Irving. So, you know, I think it seems like they're happy with the hire and they obviously gave their blessings. So um, I think it will be good. And, and clearly, you know, some of the other kind of role guys in the Nets are excited as well. So from a player standpoint, I think everyone is is super jazzed up with it. And also the fact that Jacques Vaughn got retained, it seems right now that, you know, morale is high with with the Nets players. Do we have any indication of what Nash may hold as his philosophies as a coach in terms of will he, you know, is there any indication that he'll subscribe to the old seven seconds or less Suns push the tempo offense? Will it be a heavy three-point barrage type of scenario? Any Is there any inkling? Because, again, he's never been an assistant coach. He's never been a head coach. Have, do we have any idea of what he would be favoring? Yeah, I mean... I think initially when he first got hired, I was saying, oh, you know, it's going to be kind of, you know, a D'Antoni disciple, seven seconds or less. And I wish I could give a more concrete answer for your listeners that play fantasy as well, just to know, like, are the Nets going to be scoring a bunch of points? I think with the talent they have, they will. But I, I think he's really going to, you know, take a look back and see what fits this roster the best, whether it's something more like what, you know, Kerr implemented, where a heavy ball movement offense, which probably doesn't seem to favor KD and Kyrie. It's hard to tell. And, whenever you have kind of superstar guys, you can tell them whatever they want, whatever you want, but they're really going to be dictating the pace of play. So I'd expect the Nets to be a little bit more slower, a little bit more methodical, given that your top two guys are coming back from very serious injuries. But I think when they get some bench units out there, Nash will be telling them to, you know, play, play uh, fast as possible, you know, controlled of course, but getting up and down, getting good shots, threes early in the clock. Uh, you know, if it's a good look, who cares? So um, I think it will be interesting to see, but I think it's going to be a bit more of a, a different style depending on you know which of the top guys are actually on the court at, at any given time. Because even with Nash, you know, he played uh, probably six or seven seasons with obviously his first Phoenix tenure in Dallas, um, and they were getting up and down. But you know, he can still kind of play in, in as many different styles as you want him to. He's best known for that second Suns tenure and all the success there, but. Um, you know, it's not like he came into the league out of Santa Clara and that was immediately his MO. So I think he's going to let the players kind of figure out what style is best for them. This hire, how do you think it will be received across the league? Like, will this be the, the move? Obviously, there's Durant, there's Irving, there's Dinwiddie, there's Levert, there's Jared Allen. There's a whole bunch of really strong players on this team and this team is going to be pushing and they're going to be envisaging themselves as a championship contender and at very worst, a team that's pushing for an Eastern Conference Finals berth. But how does the addition of Nash 
yeah, change the perception or enhance the perception of this team for free agents, for guys who are looking veteran minimum types, guys who are looking to take a discount to jump on and be a fourth, fifth sort of starter, sixth man on a team like this. Do you think that that Nash hire resonates around the leagues? We know how highly regarded guys like Ty Lu are around the league, and maybe that might have had an impact in that area too. Like, How do we see this Nash hire yeah, reverberating across the free agency landscape? I think it will be a really good thing for them. I, I mean, he has a ton of admiration from kind of some of the, the younger guards in the league that grew up watching him play. He's obviously, you know, very well respected, um, I think, by the entire kind of media and, and coaches as well from his days as a player. Uh, so I think it just kind of gives the Nets some respect that might have been dwindling a little bit. Because when you think about when KD and Kyrie signed, the Nets were kind of this you know, um, an organization that really pulled themselves up by the bootstraps were able to make really smart trades, um, you know, be able to get guys from the, the G League or kind of off the scrap heap and free agency and develop them into competent role players and more. And over the last year, the I think that's lost its luster a bit with the firing of Kenny Atkinson, the guy who kind of brought them to that point and was an analytics darling, uh, trades by Sean Marks to get Torian Prince and giving up assets there, where, which you know, I think we can both look back and say it was not a good move. So the Nets roster is a bit in flux right now. And I think this hire shows that they are still a destination. Um, you know, really smart basketball people like Steve Nash are still attracted to them, both from an organization standpoint and a roster talent standpoint. I think it kind of, you know, puts them back on the map, uh, maybe a bit more. Uh, obviously, you know, this was always going to be a gap year for them. But I think it just shows that they're ready to hit year two of the KD Kyrie era. Uh, they hit the ground running and hopefully it does attract some guys that are kind of uh, in the free agency mix who are looking to go to a contender and still may see the Nets as an option to get, you know, significant playing time given some of the roster holes that they do have. Well, it is going to be really, really interesting to see how Nash goes in his first go around as an NBA coach. And Josh, of course, you'll have that for us all over on Locked On Nets. So thanks for coming on Locked On NBA with me. Always a pleasure, Josh. Thanks so much. We're all stuck at home in some way, and we'll have cravings for great, great food. And that's exactly where DoorDash comes in. You're stressed. You've got so many things on your mind. It's hard to leave the house, but you still want to eat at a high-quality level. DoorDash brings the food straight to your door. Whatever you're craving, DoorDash can get it to you. Ordering is easy. You just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. With over 300,000 partners in the US, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can support your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery, so just open the DoorDash app and select your favorite local restaurant and your food will be left at your door. And right now, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the code LOCKEDONNBA. That's $5 off your first order and zero delivery fees when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code LOCKEDONNBA. Don't forget, the code is LOCKEDONNBA for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Now we go to Toronto to speak with the host of the Locked On Raptors podcast. Sean Woodley is here with me. Toronto down 2-0 in this series, have won the last two games. The OG Ananobi buzzer beater at the end of game three. Do you think that had a big impact on game four? Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I think obviously it made it so game four meant something and they were down 3-0. And the swing that, that, that the series has taken on that shot is pretty remarkable. 
helpful. But uh, I just kind of feel like games two, three, and four have kind of seen the Raptors get back to what they do well. And, and no, they haven't shot well at all times. And, you know, even in game four, where they, I think, were like 17 of 44, uh, they had Pascal Siakam shoot two of 13. And, you know, it hasn't always been the crispest in terms of shot making. What in terms of finding looks, I think the Raptors have done a really good job of just like working the process of their offense for the most part. Um, you know, aside from a couple times where they've gotten a little bit happy with isolations against like Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown, which seems stupid. And I'm glad they kind of curbed that a little bit in the most recent game. Um, so I'm not surprised they've been able to string together a few good games here. And I think. The driver of that is the starting lineup. They have just been bludgeoning the Celtics starters so far in this series. Even with the game one uh, uh, blowout baked in, the Raptors starters still have a plus 7.8 net rating in this series, while the Celtics have a negative 11.1. And that, I think, is kind of a trend that should be kept have an eye kept on because really the Raptors are winning minutes to start the first and, and, and third quarters. And that's because the starters have been so good. And, and you know, when you get to crunch time and you have Marcus all out there and you know setting hard screens and you have the space of, of all the shooting they have out there it's just a really tough team to defend when when things are actually falling for them which i i think it's it kind of makes sense that they're starting to fall now you mentioned pascal siakam who i think has had some struggles here in the bubble and in the playoffs he was yeah the man on this team earlier in the year put up big big numbers early on october november of course made his made his first all-star game um but it feels like he's either you know, trying to force things a little bit too much. How have you viewed where Siakam is sitting with this team, his pecking order in the offense, and, and if, is he doing trying to do too much? Uh, yeah, I think at times he's doing a little bit too much. Uh, I think, look, it's been weird for Pascal in the entire bubble. I think, you know, he may know about the fact that he barely touched the basketball for the four months they were in quarantine. He was cooped up in his condo in Toronto and didn't really get to shoot all that much. And so I think there was understandably some rust. And I think that's just kind of bled into him, you know, not totally feeling it on the offensive end. He's not as quick with his decisions. He gets a little bit too... I think fixated on trying to figure things out when it comes to, you know, all right, I got to get my post game figured out. I got to get my mid range figured out. And you'll just kind of like fixate on things. And I think we saw uh, with the 13 threes he took in game four where none of them were falling, but they just kept coming to him. And he said, well, I got to shoot myself out of this at some point. He didn't, but I, I think it's, you know, positive signs. And I think the last two games, the second half of game three, and then pretty much all of game four, the three point shooting aside, he's kind of looked more like himself. He's been much faster when it comes, making decisions he's not getting bogged down with those like eight second long post-ups where he's trying to you know tease someone to come and double but they won't and he's just kind of stuck in no man's land just kind of his wheels and his touch around the basket got a lot better in game four as well he was eight of ten from inside the arc in that game uh this comes off the heels of him being kind of dreadful from around the rim for most of the series and you know it was just a refreshing sort of return to what pascal was about and look this is not the end game for pascal siakam this is his first and as a number one go-to option there are always going to be growing pains and in fact growing pains that could very well cost the raptors their advancement in the playoffs so like i wouldn't put past past you know, having another bad game or two here to close out this series because you know it's still a learning experience for him but at the same time i will say even when his offense is not clicking when you have kyle lowry playing the way he is og and Obi playing the way he is serge Ibaka doing what he's doing off the bench scoring wise and then you factor in what pascal's doing defensively which has just been remarkable so far He's been amazing on Jason Tatum. He's allowed the Raptors to scramble and do their sort of per perfect on a string defense thing. He's been outstanding so far on that end of the floor. Pretty much 
the entire bubble. And so you're never going to get into like a DeMar DeRozan situation, for example, back in previous editions of the Raptors where, you know, DeMar's offense isn't there because it's just not suitable the playoffs and you can't even play him because his defense is so just ghastly you know pascal is a very very good defender who makes the raptors tick on defense and when he's humming on offense they make the he makes them really damn tough to beat and they just kind of have to roll with it and if it turns out that he's not quite ready and they lose because of it i don't think that is some sort of damning indictment of pascal oh it's his first year he's figuring things out he's still learning the raptors are still learning what they have in him and i think those those growing pains were always to be expected well, we've got game uh, game five coming up here on Monday. Um, what do you think, Sean, is, is the key here for the Raptors to continue this momentum? You know, winning three in a row is, is never an easy thing, especially against a quality opponent like Boston. But what's going to be the key here for them to get this uh, advantage in the series? Look, it's insanely boring, but it's just like making open shots. This is such an evenly matched series. And honestly, the, the tactical side of things is a little bit less interesting than I thought it was going to be because both teams really only have like six guys they can trust right now. And because of that, you're not seeing, you know, crazy lineups and, you know, going big and going small and trying to counteract. It's all just kind of been down to is Jalen Brown going to go two of 11 from three or five of nine? Is Marcus Smart going to have five threes in the start of the fourth quarter? And in a series that's so close, it is kind of down to those aberrations and I think the Raptors have done a good job of sort of lining it up so that the aberrations can go in their favor I think they're again their process is there when it comes to creating shots their driving kick game has been really on point especially with Kyle Lowry kind of initiating everything and being just a terror getting to the basket and then uh, you know creating from there if there's not something for him to attack at the rim and because of that you know i feel pretty good about where the Raptors sit right now they, they, they've kind of i think bust out of the funk that was kind of not just game one against the Celtics, but it was kind of enveloping them against the Nets as well. It just didn't matter because the Nets stink. Um, but I think the last three games, we've kind of seen what the Raptors are all about. And I, I think, look, things can go weird. Jason Tatum can pop off. You know, Kemba Walker could have a 35-point game and this series can easily go the way of the Celtics. I just feel like the Raptors, the way they're playing, uh, they're kind of doing themselves a lot of favors when it comes to making sure the variance comes on, comes down in favor of them from the number of threes they're taking to just their process on both both ends of the floor. It's going to be a must-watch game, must-must-watch game in Game Five here to see which team can get the ascendancy. Sean, you'll have it covered for us all over on Locked On Raptors. Thanks for coming on Locked On NBA with me. Anytime, man. If you're looking to stay in shape, to lose some weight, to maintain your current buff physique. Why wouldn't you look at Built Bar, the best tasting protein bars that are around? Built Bar is back, and they are back with six new flavors: caramel brownie, cherry barcia. Carrot Cake, Apple Almond Crisp, Lemon Almond Cheesecake, and Cookies and Cream to go along with their original 12 flavors. All bars are covered in 100% chocolate, and they're soft and easy to chew. They are low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber protein bars. Great for a keto diet as well. Just look at their new Coconut Almond Bar. 18 grams of protein with 180 calories, just 180 calories, 5 grams of sugar, and 5 grams of net carbs. Also, the cookies and cream, 17 grams of protein, and a ridiculous 130 calories. And right now, if you go to BuiltBar.com and use the promo code LOCKEDON, you'll get $10 off your next order. So, BuiltBar.com, use that promo code LOCKEDON, one word, and you save $10 off at BuiltBar.com. And now we go to... Milwaukee via Geelong, Geelong via Milwaukee. I don't know how best to say it, but we're going to talk Bucks, and we're doing it with the host of the Locked On Bucks podcast, Kane Pittman, is here. Milwaukee lives to fight another day, but 
Giannis onto the compo. His uh, his ankle's in a little bit of trouble, Kane. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this pulls up. Giannis has had a, a long history of turning his ankle like this. There's certainly been times where he's gone down like this and then all of a sudden come up and played uh, within a couple of days. Obviously, there's only 48 hours between the end of game four and tipping game five, so he hasn't got a lot of time to recover. Clearly, it being the... Uh, already tweaking that ankle and, and then hurting hurting that ankle here in this game. Uh, it didn't look good, did it? No, it didn't. He he came in, yeah, came into game four with that ankle problem, and then uh, yeah, after playing just eleven minutes, he was out for the game. He had nineteen points in those eleven minutes, but the Bucks get the victory in overtime in the end, one that they desperately needed. Now, one thing I'm going to, and I know you've got thoughts on this, uh, ask you about here, Kane, is the minutes. We had forty eight minutes for Chris Middleton in this game, forty two minutes for Brooke Lopez. Why is Mike Budenholzer contradicting himself in terms of talking about that these guys can't play more than 36 minutes? So then when they need to, he does go out and play them that and then gives an answer to you in that press conference today saying, oh, that's why we saved the minutes up so they can do it in these games. Why would he not do that in the first three games? Something doesn't add up. <laughs> well, I think this was absolute necessity. I still believe, and we've seen this, that he probably would have liked to keep Chris uh, in the high 30s rather than tip into the 40s. Funnily enough, this was the most minutes Chris had played since Game 3 against Chicago back in 2015. So, uh, you know, obviously 47 minutes, 59 seconds is a is a huge workload. But they just needed him to. And it was kind of funny to hear Bud say that because uh, the Bucks have been really, really good with Chris on the floor in this series. He's been their best player in this series. And, you know, you would have liked to have seen him play some more in the earlier games, but Bud, uh, let's be honest, he's got a long history of playing this way and uh, using his bench and trusting those guys, but I think we saw in Game 3 the rotation tightened a little bit, and then when you lose Giannis, who only got 11 minutes tonight, I, I think it was more necessity than anything else. Yeah, that, that that is true. Losing Giannis does bring more minutes to those guys because Brook Lopez played a ton as well. 42 minutes here, 40 minutes for Eric Bledsoe because we had seen in Game 3 that they did excise Pat Connaughton from the rotation. But one thing that has been interesting and a guy that's been super important for Milwaukee all season is Dante DiVincenzo. But he, I think, struggled through most of the bubble and most of the playoffs. But the last two games... He's been uh, much better. Now, he had that yeah, free throw issue at the end there of regulation, but yeah, played 27 minutes. Is he back on track to where he was as a key part of the rotation early on? I think so. I mean, we really saw it in game three, and the Bucks desperately needed it in that game. Obviously, they fell short, but I think the difference you've seen in these last two games now is he's been active again on the defensive end. He's coming up with steals. He's coming up with those defle deflections, and that's where DiVincenzo brings value to this Bucks team. And I think as a result of that, He's found his confidence again, and he's been able to score at the rim a little bit. Not so much shooting the threes 0 for 2 in game four, but uh, there's no doubt. I mean, he was a key, key factor for this team, and many thought that he was going to, myself included, thought that he was going to be an X factor for this team in the postseason. And as you pointed to, the whole the whole bubble from the scrimmage games through the seeding games through the first uh, first round and first couple of games of this series, he just has not been the same player. So I think without doubt, it may be a little bit too little too late, but certainly the last two games seeing him contribute has been uh, fantastic. And you have to give him full credit. I know you mentioned the free throw, but he did miss the first one. But to be under that pressure, that was the Bucks' season on the line with his hands at the free throw line and he knocked it down. I, I thought uh, he deserved some credit for that. Yeah, so they, they get out of that with with the victory there. So I guess uh, all, all's well that ends well after missing that first one. But it is, yeah, pretty big balls to get get that second one to drop. Um, what did we see from this game for Kane that would give Bucks fans a level of confidence? Because 
Miami wasn't at their best, and I guess you could look at it. And one thing I always look at is, was there shooting luck? And maybe there was, because the Bucks shot just 31% from three and still got the victory. So that's something I'd be hanging my hat on as a Bucks fan. Well, we can be better than this. We can shoot better than this. But I wouldn't say Miami was, was at their best. So did Milwaukee figure something out in this one? Well, I think it was just pure desperation, particularly when Giannis goes down, because at the time, I mean, you look at Giannis's numbers, 19 points in 11 minutes. He was 8 for 10 from the field. He knocked down a three as well. He was doing everything. And no, and he was only the only reason that they were even in this game when he went down. No one else could hit a shot at all. So, you know, in a funny way, you really got the sense that once Giannis went down, everyone was like, okay, we're going to get off our heels here. And we actually have to contribute and start making shots and moving the ball on offense. So, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, they're still 3-1 down. And obviously, it whatever success that they're going to have is going to start or end with the availability of Giannis in Game 5. But uh, I do think perhaps for the other guys, and you mentioned DiVincenzo, but George Hill I thought was pretty good in this game. Perhaps those guys now carry the confidence through from this game, winning and coming from behind in the fourth quarter without Giannis in a playoff game. Uh, maybe they get a little bit of hope from that. Yeah, you can see that that would be something that would be you know, talked about amongst the playing groups. So, hey, we did it without Giannis. He can come back, and we can get this run going. It's going to be hard from here, of course. They need to win three straight games to to get out of this series, and the odds are fairly heavily tipped against them to do that. But this is the one they needed, and it's not like they you know, they weren't in other games. There was that weird one with the fouls at the end. Uh, in I can't remember if it was even was it game two or game three, but they you know, that could have gone either way in that one as well. So it's not like they've been completely obliterated in all these games. So there is some hope there that, uh, that this could happen. They could go on a, on a bit of a run here. Just quickly on Eric Bledsoe, who's had playoff struggles well-documented throughout his career. How has he looked here? Look, he played 40 minutes. He had 14, 10, and 6. The numbers on the surface look okay. Has it been a better playoff Eric Bledsoe, playoff Eric Bledsoe than what we've seen in the past? Well, I thought he was really important in this game. The big issue with him was those three-pointers. Then he takes those early three-point shots. No one really likes to see him take those, but uh, he does fall in love with that a little bit, and he was 0 for 6 from 3. But if you take away the 0 for 6 from 3, he was 6 uh, six for 7 from the field inside the perimeter, got to the free-throw line 2 for 3, and as you pointed to, the 6 assists, the 10 rebounds. And perhaps more importantly than anything, for a significant stretch in this game, he defended Jimmy Butler. He was very physical with him, and he was able to at least make Jimmy Butler uncomfortable, which is a problem that Chris Milton has had through earlier in the series. Uh, he hasn't been able to do that. So uh, I think Bledsoe, again, his value for this team is penetrating, being aggressive on offense, getting to the basket, looking for those looks rather than settling for the threes and then defensive. Defensively, he was everywhere. He was hitting the floor. He was diving for loose balls, and that's the best version of Eric Bledsoe. So, uh, I thought he was pretty good tonight, and I, I think that, as you sort of pointed to, he has has been or has ha taken a lot of criticism over the years. But I, I think for the most part, he he's been pretty good in this series, outside of a pretty ugly game three. Well. The Bucks, they're back in it. They've got life. Kane, you're going to have it all covered for us over on Locked On Bucks over what happens in Game 5 and maybe 6 and maybe 7. And we'll see exactly how that goes down for the uh, best team in the Eastern Conference all season. Thanks for coming on Locked On NBA with me. Anytime, man. Thank you. All right, that'll wrap it up for today's episode of Locked On NBA. Don't forget to subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on Spotify. And if you could go leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated. Follow me on Twitter at RedRock underscore b as well. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.